Feeling uncomfortable with the amount of learning that's in front of you right now? If so, today's guest says that's not a bad thing. In fact, some of the best professional development comes in the midst of struggle. On this episode, the value of being uncomfortable. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 448. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the principles of learning that I've not been able to get around is how learning and professional development makes us uncomfortable. I wish there was a way around it, but I haven't found one yet. And I haven't found anyone else who's found it yet either. And so what that means for us is as we're learning, how can we get a little more comfortable with being uncomfortable, not only for ourselves, but for the folks that we have the privilege to be able to lead? Today's guest is an expert not only at helping people live happier lives, but also at helping people to learn and grow and to do and get comfortable more with being uncomfortable. I'm so glad to welcome back to the show, Neil Pazrika. Neil helps people live happy lives and is the New York Times bestselling author of The Happiness Equation and the Book of Awesome series, which has been published in 10 countries, spent over five years on bestseller lists, and sold over a million copies. He's a Harvard MBA, one of the most popular TED speakers of all time, and after 10 years heading leadership development at Walmart, now serves as the director of the Institute of Global Happiness. He is the author of the new book, You Are Awesome, How to Navigate Change, Wrestle with Failure, and Live an Intentional Life. Neil, so glad to have you back on. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. I appreciate it. So you have created a entire business around the word awesome. <laughs> I I am from California, and so I yeah. use awesome as part of my language every day. And we even have a stuffed animal in our house named Awesome Coyote. So I'm thinking between those three, we should pretty much cover the gamut on everything we need to discuss today, right? You're making me laugh because if you go on <laughs> Urban Dictionary, the definition of awesome is what Americans use to describe everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And ironically, we're here today to talk about mediocrity. <laughs> So how to get comfortable with actually not doing something well. And as I was reading through your book and thinking about how do we get comfortable with being uncomfortable and reading of some of your stories, I just couldn't help but be nodding my head all along and thinking, wow, your story is different than mine. But in some ways, the lessons are so similar. And I want to take you back a number of years to your first professional role working at Procter & Gamble. And I'm wondering if you could set the stage for us on what that experience was like after going through school and getting recruited into this really prestigious organization and starting there. Sure, absolutely. Well, I graduated from Queen's University School of Business in 2002. And at the time, Queen's University School of Business was considered like the top business school in Canada, if not one of the top. And Procter & Gamble was considered the marketing job. I mean, they even published a little report at the school saying, here's the salary ranges of all marketing jobs. And like the Procter & Gamble salary, which at the time was $51,000, was like the top salary. 
And so when I jumped through all the hurdles of the math test, the English test, the first round of interviews, the second round of interviews got sent to the head office and panel interviews. And when I finally got this offer, I was like, man, I felt like Charlie Bucket winning like the golden ticket, you know, and, and Charlie and the chocolate factory. I was like, oh my gosh, they're going to give me $2,000 worth of massages a year. And I'm going to have four weeks vacation. I'll, I can get my teeth like covered in gold plates on, on the company. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, literally my first day, Dave, you aren't going to believe it. They had two ergonomists. Like this is a word I never heard before. Like two people in smocks come over to my desk and evaluate how I'm sitting and set me up with better footstools and show me a phone number. I could literally press a button on my phone. It would call like a central services department in Costa Rica, which could then tilt an angle like the heating and cooling events above my station so I could be more comfortable while oh, I worked. Wow, wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was like, again, I felt like Charlie Bucket. And so here I am, had a little bit of swagger coming in this job and, and I start the job and, and the big gigantic takeaway was... I was horrible at it. I, I could oh, not no. have been worse at this job. I honestly thought it was a PowerPoint job and it turned out to be an Excel job. I was this creative guy. Like I was on the school newspaper. I came up with cool posters for marketing and I get there and they're like, yeah, you're going to have to crunch this 10,000 row spreadsheet and do a pricing analysis on whether we should increase the costs of mascara by like 2% next year by analyzing trucking, gasoline and a million other variables. And I was like, my eyes went crossed. Like I couldn't understand this stuff. This is way beyond me. And so I stunk at the job, Dave. I, I, I was horrible at it. And then, of course, as a, an overachiever, I don't know if you know this famous study from Mizuzi University over in Malawi, but this, this researcher named Marissa Mawali looked at how people feel when they fail. They separated between people that are low and high achieving adolescents. Well, guess what? If you're a high achiever, and I think you are, and I think I am, then you think, it's on me. If I'm failing, that's my fault. I can do better. Yeah, it's great that we have this sort of, sort of strong mental, mental kind of guide. But at the same time, we then think it's all our fault. And low achievers are more likely to think, oh, maybe it's the system. Maybe I wasn't set up to succeed. Maybe there's a factor beyond my control. And as our economy gets tighter, more and more of us are in that first camp where we think it's all on me. So I felt terrible. I was working late. I started coming in on weekends. I start grinding my teeth. I need to get like a, a mouth guard because I'm so stressed. I mean, this is the equivalent of trying to kick your arms and legs faster to go faster in the swimming pool. You know what I mean? Like you, I, I was just flailing. And as this is happening and I'm getting more and more stressed and I'm, I'm kind of walking out of meetings, feeling like I didn't know my numbers and everything's going on. I actually say to myself, they're going to fire me. They actually came to me and said, this is just a few months into my job. So a few months into my first full-time job ever, at this top company from this top business school that I felt great about, they come in and say, hi, Neil, we'd like to put you on a performance improvement plan. Oh, and no. I, was like, I was like, what's that? And, and, you know, and they didn't say this, but my like 10 years later paraphrases, it's like saying, we'd like to fire you, but we don't have enough of a paper trail. Yeah. So let's build one together. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, why don't we write down all the stuff you suck at every time you suck at something? So then I'm like, I couldn't emotionally handle the idea that I was going to get fired. It was going to, it was, that was going to rattle and shake my like high achieving identity so deeply that I then just went in and quit. Like I was so, I could not handle it. So nine months into the job, I gave them what I thought they wanted and I quit. And at that point, Dave, what happened in my head was I catastrophized it. I thought, if I can't, work here, the best company with a great, and, you know, with a great supportive culture and, and, and kind people and, you know, a lot of structure, then I can't really work anywhere. Maybe I'm not good at office jobs. 
And I thought, well, if I can't do marketing, that was like my best mark in business school. I certainly can't do things like finance and stuff. That's, that's kind of way beyond me. So I guess I can't go in marketing again. And by the way, if I, if I look for another job, they're just going to call these people. They're going to be like, wait a minute, you only lasted nine months here. Can we give those guys a call? And, and those guys are going to say, this guy's horrible. I pictured the worst case scenario from a career standpoint. And of course, I also thought I'm going to go bankrupt. I'm never going to make a dollar. I'm going to, you know, like my life is over as, as, as like a working person. And that is what I call pointing the spotlight straight at yourself. It's a tendency many of us have, especially high achievers, you know, like the folks listening to your podcast. And we have a tendency to think it's all about me and I'm terrible. You write, I didn't see it then and I wouldn't see it for at least 10 years. But the failure at PNG helped me to get more comfortable with being uncomfortable. What was that experience like? Well, unfortunately for me, I was a very low resilient person. Okay. So my part of the reason I wrote this entirely new book, You Are Awesome, all about resilience, is because I identified on myself as like, this is something I don't have. Like most of us these days, we grew up without famines or wars or any sort of form of great gigantic societal stress. We typically get gold stars, participation ribbons, cars drive us home with the press of a button. There's takeout waiting on our front porch. We can our phones entertain us. We live in a relatively not relatively, we live by any metric, the most abundant society ever. But the side effect of that is that we no longer have the tools to handle failure. We no longer have the tools to handle what happens if you get fired, if you get divorced, if you go through a major life change, if you get a breakup, anything. These things rattle us to our core because we no longer have the skill set to handle them. So I didn't see for years that the Procter & Gamble blow, as it was to me at the time, actually was one of my first lessons on, oh, you can get through something like that. It will feel very uncomfortable, very awkward. As I said, I quit just before they fire me because I was so uncomfortable. But you can navigate it and you can and you will learn how to do it as you go. Here's the thing. We are so often taught that when we look at successful people, what we are looking at is accumulated pile of successes. That's what you're taught to think. That's what business school and these case studies, and you know, we hear all these leaders and hear as heroes. Unfortunately, that's totally wrong. What we are actually looking at when we see successful people is somebody who has just been through the most amount of failures of anyone else. In fact, what we're seeing is the most resilient person. It's a really important distinction. And I'll give you a couple examples here. You know, Cy Young, he's the guy who has won the most games ever in baseball, oh, yeah. right? Like they named the award after him, the Cy Young right, Award. Right. But, but Dave, guess who has the most losses in baseball? Is it him? It's Cy Young. <laughs> now, awesome. now what, if I, what if I say Nolan Ryan? You know Nolan Ryan? He's got the most strikeouts in all of baseball. That's the best thing you can do as a pitcher is strike a guy out, right? Well, guess who has the most walks? Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan. My point is typically it's the people who fail the most that get the most success. Look, they always say, oh, Tom Brady, he's got the most complete passes. I bet you if you looked up the most incomplete passes, he'd have them. So we are so quick to look at people who are successful as if they are a product of endless success when actually they are the product of just the most failures and they are the most resilient. I'm thinking about your message of getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think that's part of the reason I was nodding my head so much as I was reading, especially your story earlier in your career, because my story is similar to a different, but similar in really running into a ton of issues early on in my career and 
not having really handled that before, right? You know, having had pretty good success, you know, in school and all that up to that point, and assuming that that would continue. And then when I hit those points, I found that it was really a challenging time to struggle through not being the best at something, or at least not being reasonably good at something. Tell me more. Like, what I love about your podcast, Dave, is you. And when I listen to your guests, I actually often want to hear a little bit more of you. I, I know it's your show, but like to the extent you're comfortable, like tell me more. Like what actually happened? Yeah, sure. So, boy, I, when I started, my first full time role was working in an education business, and I was a director of a center that helped kids to learn math and reading skills. And looking back, I was mediocre at the job, or average at the job mediocre to average spin on the day. And I really struggled with the culture of the organization was very much in a good way, in your face, very direct feedback, wanted people to show a ton of initiative, hired people from the top schools, you know, like your experience. And I did not show up high <laughs> on that distribution as far as someone who was doing those things particularly well. And I struggled for the first couple of years. I got passed over for promotions several times. And the feedback I would get was you're not moving fast enough on stuff. You're not taking initiative. You're missing deadlines. And I was. And looking back now, I realized, wow, you know, I, I missed a whole bunch of opportunities to do that. And I did a little different situation than you, but I opted out also. And I went and started my own coaching practice and left the role and then dived in and started to do one-on-one coaching and, and what I thought I was going to do, professional speaking, at the ripe age of 24. With no experience other than one job, and <laughs> <Yeah>. I, <laughs> it's I crashed and burned so hard. I, I joke with people now that I did actually find a few coaching clients, and I think the only reason that people hired me is because they really felt sorry for me. I went to a few networking events pretty regularly and got to know a few people, and those were the couple of people that hired me. And I really do think they felt sorry for me, and just like, well, let's just throw this kid a bone. <laughs> and see if he can help us out or help me out in some way. And it was really a difficult time because I was so used to doing things well. I was used to putting in a lot of effort, but then seeing really good results happen from that effort in fairly short order. And all of a sudden, here I was putting in probably more effort than I ever had in my life before in anything. And I was getting a tenth of the results, if that. And it was, it was a couple of years, even into my first year at Carnegie, I, I tell the story to our Academy members that I went into my boss's office after my first full year at Dale Carnegie, and I didn't have the resignation letter written, but I basically offered him my resignation and said, this is not going well. And pe- people liked me, but I was not performing at all as far as doing the work I was supposed to be doing on tracking down new business, which was my job. And thankfully, he didn't accept it. Because if he had, I think I would have taken a very, very different direction and I wouldn't be doing the show. But it was painful. It was so painful at that time. Looking back now, it, 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 it almost seems worse now looking back of how difficult that time was because I wasn't used to not doing well. Yeah. And that first breakup, that first job you suck out, that first thing you get fired, that one hurts the most. <laughs> Because there's yeah. this other study, it's, it's come out from Thomas Curran. He's this professor at the University of Bath. And the, the name of the study is called Perfectionism is Increasing Over Time, which means that recent generations of young people perceive that others are more demanding of them, they are more demanding of others, and they are more demanding of themselves than ever before. 
this capitalistic shrink wrap that we've got squeezed over everything makes us demand so much of ourselves. And then when we fall or when we, when we slip, when we crack, it's like a further fall. <laughs> like we're falling from a taller cliff in, in a sense. And so the problem, I think, honestly, Dave, and I think it sounds like it happened both for you and me, is this something called the spotlight effect. So just quickly for listeners, and, and, I, and some of you may have heard of this before, some of you may have not. I had not heard about this until I'm researching resilience to write this book, and I come across this amazing, interesting term. It's, it's come out in the year 2000. Okay, the journal that it published is called Current Directions in Psychological Science. This is two guys, Thomas Gilovich and Kenneth Savitsky. They coined this new term called the spotlight effect. Well, what is that? It is the feeling, and I think we can all relate to this, that we are being noticed, watched, observed, and even judged much more than we really are. Meaning that because we are the centers of our own world, and by the way, the world makes us feel like we are the center, right? Like you got cameras on the front of your cell phone now. We post selfies all the time. We have our own reel, our own role, our own, everything's about us in our world. Our whole mirror of our cell phones is projecting back to us an image of ourselves at all times. Well, it turns out that because we think we're the center of that world, we think we're the center of everyone else's world too, but we're just not. So just so you know, the study is very interesting. They asked these Cornell students to estimate their own abilities in the eyes of others in physical appearance, athletic accomplishment, and how well they played a video game. Well, the participants, as you may or may not be surprised, constantly overestimated the extent in which their strengths and weaknesses would even be noticed (laughs) by Mm. observers. We think everyone's staring like in a crowd around us, pointing and looking at us when actually they're all just looking at their own cell phones. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? The problem is it's a dangerous projection to have because we overestimate how important what we're doing is all the time. If you go through a failure, you know what? No one at Procter & Gamble probably even remembers I worked there. Here I am 10 years later talking about it, writing about it, like I'm processing it clearly. It's a chapter in my new book. But here, if I go back to that office and knock on the door, people are like, who's that? Like no one would even know who I was. Yeah. But it's a huge deal to me. And this is something we need to be aware of because the question is, is what you're so worried about important to anyone else Mm. is it is it just ask yourself that question because then you can relieve yourself of a lot of the stress if it's not yeah this is a really helpful road to go down because i you know knowing our tendency on tending to put that spotlight on ourselves one helpful thing we can do is to shift it a bit Mm -hmm. what is useful when going through especially going through a situation like you went through early in your career i went through a number of times in my career for people who do this better, not necessarily yeah. well, but better, and yeah. are able to shift a bit, what do they do? Well, I, I write about three questions, Dave, that I ask myself whenever I'm going through something, and, and they really often help me zoom out of the problems, shift the spotlight a little bit, and, and they are these. Okay, here's the three questions. Number one, will this matter on my deathbed? I gave a speech yesterday at a company called Shopify, which is a huge company up where oh, I live yeah. in, Tor- in Toronto, Canada, right? And they're based in Ottawa. They have a big office in Toronto. And a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, Neil, I got a problem. I, you know, I'm in HR. I, I send out these little meeting requests and, you know, sometimes people respond or they don't respond. And I second guess myself and I, did I word my invitation wrong? And why didn't anyone reply? Or maybe I should have rewritten the sentence. And I, I think about it all day. And it's just like a little meeting request to six people. And I said to her, are you getting outside enough? She's like, no, I'm here like around the clock. This is like my full-time life. And I was like, ah, that's the problem. The question, will this matter on my deathbed is simply just a helpful zoom out. And it could also be done by taking a nature walk at lunch or 
gaining perspective on your role because you're, you know, fully embroiled maybe in your side hustle for a while on the weekend. So you now see your work lens as like, oh, that's work from a little bit of a distance. What are you doing to zoom out? Okay. The deathbed question helps me because I'm just well aware of these big regrets of the dying. It's a really famous viral article that's like, I regret that I didn't let myself be happier. I regret that I didn't keep touch with my friends. So those are the things people actually worry about. Nobody worries about whether you sent out a survey email and if you got the wording wrong. So that's why it's just a helpful zoom up because so often you're like, ah, that's just not a big deal and it won't be a big deal at the end of my life. So why is it today? The second question is, can I do something about this? This is very important. So often we overstress about things we cannot control. And the reason this is a good question is because you ask yourself this question, can I do something about it? And the beautiful thing is if you can't, well, that's like uh, Parkinson's law, right? You're re- you, you don't have any choice, so you therefore can't do anything, so you're relieved of the obligation of even worrying about it. And the beautiful thing is if you can do something about it, then that means you can do something about it. That means you can fix it. That means you can improve it. That means it will also be solved as well. So that question, can I do something about it, is really helpful. It just, again, is just a little mental way to shift the spotlight and see what you're doing in a new light. And the third question I ask myself is, a little bit meta, but it is, is this a story I'm telling myself? So often our human tendency is to lacquer on to any core objective truth a story. So for example, you fail a biology test. The story you tell yourself is, I failed my parents. Right? That's not the same thing. That's a story. We have to learn to husk away all the things that we are lacquering on on top of the fact. The fact was, I sucked at Procter & Gamble. The end, it did not mean I sucked at marketing. I sucked at office jobs. Certainly, I was the director of leadership development at Walmart just a few years later. Like I did great at the next job. But at the time, I was telling myself all kinds of stories. I even told myself the story, I'm never going to get married because my, my best chance for meeting my future spouse lies right here in this like young kind of atmosphere of people my own age and my own background. Like, like what a horrible story to tell myself that I'm now going to be single and destitute forever because I suddenly got fired from my job. But this is what we do. We amplify things rather than minimize them. The point was made on a recent episode that we say things to ourselves that we would never say to anyone else. And mm. I'm thinking about the story we tell ourselves. And as you have asked that question of yourself, and as you've taught other people to ask that question, what is it that people do to get some clarity around whether or not it's a story they're telling themselves or whether it is actual reality? Because that, that seems really hard to parse out. Yeah, totally. There's great work on this by Carol Dweck, who wrote the book Mindset. And she uses this great example that I love playing. It's like a, almost like a trick I play on my own brain. So I'd love to do it on your brain, Dave, and see if you fall into the same trap I do. Yeah, please. And probably okay, I will. <laughs> so so here's, here's the scenario. One day, you go to your 12th grade chemistry class. You like the class, but when your test is handed back, you got a 65%. You're bummed. You tell your best friend, but she whisks by you in a rush somewhere. You feel brushed off. Next, you head out to your car to drive home and see you got a parking ticket. How do you feel, Dave? Awful. Awful. Yeah. Yeah, you're shattered. What are you telling yourself? What are some of the stories that, you're, that are in your head right now? Oh, the victim mindset is what mm-hmm. comes up for me is this is, a, you know, the world is out to get me. Uh, mm-hmm. Why me? Why do I have to have all these bad things happen to me? 
exactly. And when I read this scenario and I, and I put it right in, you were awesome because it was so powerful for me. I actually told myself, I'm horrible at chemistry class. I'll never get into college. My best friend hates me. I don't know why she hates me. I'm so stupid because I parked in the wrong spot. I, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm a bad driver. But why did I tell you this scenario? Because when you look closely at it, see if you can shift the spotlight. It was a chemistry test, Dave. It wasn't a midterm. It wasn't a final exam. It wasn't a final mark. How many times have you bombed a test along the way? I'm, I'm lots of them, right? We all have. What about the best friend? You feel brushed off because she's in a rush. But do you know why she's in a rush? Did she get bad news? Is she rushing somewhere important? Who's to say she wasn't rushing to a class or, or got an important phone call? She didn't ditch you. She didn't hate you. She didn't send you a mass message. She didn't push you. She didn't give you a stinker. You just, have you, have you ever been in a rush before? Of course you have. Meanwhile, when somebody rushes past you, you think, well, they don't like me. And the parking ticket, this is a great one because I think we can all relate to this one. It's a ticket. Do you know how towns make money? <laughs> they, 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 they drive people around all day looking for like a wheel touching the curb and then they give you a ticket. That's how, that's like ticketers going to ticket. I mean, come on. Like you didn't lose your license. You, you're not going to jail. See, from a shifted lens perspective, all three of the things that happen in the scenario are actually very minor and very slight. But our brains, especially with some of the research I was quoting on earlier from the University of Malawi and, and that perfectionism study uh, from the University of Bath, we overamplify them in our brains and think that A, we're the center of the world. So B, everything is gigantic and, and huge and, and will disproportionately affect us. You get a nasty email from your boss, you think, I can never go back to this job. Like we take everything so personally, we are turning into an army of porcelain dolls. This goes back to what you said earlier about the, can I do something about this? That question around focus, right? What can I proactively do? And I, I picked up The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People recently, which is on my shelf, and I was paging through it. And Stephen Covey has just a great graphic on the circle of concern and the circle of influence. And it's these concentric circles. And in the, the little circle is the circle of influence, right? At the very middle. And then the larger circles, the circle of concern, all the things we think about. And he made the point, you know, 20 years ago now, if we can discipline ourselves by asking a question like you're talking about, can I do something about this? What am I going to focus on today? To focus and zero in on the circle of influence, the circle gets bigger over time. And we don't spend as much time wasting our energy focusing on the concerns of the world and all the other things out there that we can't influence as well. Isn't it amazing how almost everything that is new, and fresh and exciting in the fields of coaching and leadership and in my work on happiness and resilience and living intentionally, it's all I say. It kind of often can be traced back to like some aphorism or some piece of wisdom that you've kind of known since you were a kid. And for this one, honestly, what I think about is the serenity prayer, right? Like, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference written in like, I think the 1800s or earlier. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Indeed. Indeed. James Mattis was on the show recently, and he made the point of history shows that there's nothing new under the sun. You know, there's so many of the lessons we can continue to pull from folks. But we have to keep learning them until we learn them. Exactly, exactly. So I think this brings me back to where we started, which is getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Are you comfortable with being uncomfortable? So I worked a decade at Walmart, and I mentioned that to just mention to people that I had a salary, I had benefits had an office. Somebody fixed my computer if it was broken. If I didn't go to work, the company still moved forward. And when I went to the dentist, somebody else paid. 
Okay. Then I was really inspired by this Nassim Taleb quote that the three most addictive things in life are heroin, sugar, and a monthly paycheck. If you heard that before. And so I took my side hustle, which I'd had for eight years on the side, which is, I think last time I talked to you, I was still working there. I had, you know, I've been doing this writing thing. I'm doing the speaking thing. And I was like, I'm going to make the leap. And you know what happened when I made the leap? I was extremely uncomfortable. (laughs) Nobody paid for my dentist bill. Nobody fixed my computers. When I was sick, nothing moved forward. Often nothing got done. I'm just saying like, it was horribly uncomfortable. And I'm like in my late thirties at this time. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, didn't I get comfortable feeling uncomfortable already? I thought I was already comfortable. It's like what we just said a minute ago. You have to keep learning it until you learn it. These things are a practice. They're like yoga. The goal isn't to be perfect, it's to be a little bit better than before. So to answer your question, I'm a lot more comfortable than I used to be, but I'm sure the next time I get a big jolt, and I'm sure I will have many, I will again feel very uncomfortable. I will just learn how to navigate through it a little bit faster, a little bit quicker, and with a little bit more confidence. Mm. I was thinking about that for myself too. And I don't think I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable. The way I think about it is I'm more used to being uncomfortable now. (laughs) Does that sound weird? No, it's an important nomenclature, the distinction. And early in my career, and even starting this show, like I've done enough things with mediocrity, not because I was aiming for mediocrity, but because I was not good at it yet for long enough that that doesn't feel as weird as it used to feel. It used to feel really weird when I'd nail something. I, th- I think I nail something and I'd end up with like an A minus or like, you know, not quite there. And now that seems like the norm. And on the occasions when something really brilliant happens, it's like, oh, that was nice. And I feel like my thinking has changed on it over the years just because of life experience. I mean, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. With age comes wisdom. And as we go forward, we're all just trying to, I mean, that's, I think why you do the show. And I think that's why people listen is we are just trying to kind of pan for gold, collect little morsels of wisdom along the way to make our journey a little bit better. So the book is You Are Awesome, How to Navigate Change, Wrestle with Failure, and Live an Intentional Life. So we're going to be linking up to the book in this week's weekly leadership guide. We're going to send folks to your blog, Neil, which is fabulous for wisdom on this. Before I let you go, I'm curious, as you've been going around the world and teaching people about resilience and going through this writing, and this research over the last couple of years, and also with the eye to so much of the work you do on happiness. What have you changed your mind on in the last few years? <sighs> the biggest thing is honestly that there is no right way to do it. There is no right way to do anything. I grew up in an East Indian culture. You're supposed to kind of study hard, get good grades, and hopefully become a doctor. You know what I mean? And so from that, at least get a, get a job, at least go to school, at least. But the thing is, Dave, there's no right way to do it. There isn't. No matter who you are, you live for an average of 30,000 days. Life is tiny and short and fleeting, and we are never as young as we are right now. So the best thing we can do is just simply follow our hearts, do what we love, pursue our passions, and create our art as however we define it as best as we can. That's been something that's been hard for me to kind of get rid of off the shell, the cultural shell, the maybe the sort of traditions I grew up in. But it's super important for me to kind of learn and keep remembering that there's just no right way to do it. So the important thing is to just do it your way. Neil Pazrika, you, sir, are awesome. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Mm-hmm. 
lots of related episodes to today's conversation. The process of being uncomfortable and learning, of course, brings up so much around how we can get better and help others around us get better. One of the perspectives that'll be useful to you if that is top of mind is episode 273 with Mindy Dana. We talked about the essentials of adult development and the different stages of adult development. And you will inevitably find folks at all of those different stages, or at least many of them, around you in your organization. And if you haven't thought before about those different stages and how you may work differently or interact differently with folks at different stages of adult development, episode 273 is a very helpful starting point for you. I'd also recommend episode 334, How to Be a Happier Person. That was the last time Neil was on the show. We talked about some of the key principles that he teaches around happiness. And so much of his work is focused on that in his writing. And we dispel some of the common myths that are out there on what is going to make a person happy. Also some very useful strategies in that episode on how you can begin down that journey of finding a bit more happiness, if that is something that is a goal for you right now. And then if you are ready to move and perhaps make yourself a little bit uncomfortable in order to perform better, I'd recommend episode 337, Six Tactics for Extraordinary Performance. Morton Hansen out at Berkeley wrote a fabulous book on looking at some of the ways that leaders, specifically in an organization's, have developed better performance, not only for themselves, but for others. Six key tactics in that episode that you can use in order to drive performance. So many folks have found that model useful over the years, and we have adopted uh, some of the key strategies of that within the Coaching for Leaders Academy as well. And then finally, I'd recommend a episode I aired on Dave's journal a while back called Neil Armstrong's Other Landings. We all know Neil Armstrong's most famous landing in July 1969 on the moon. Turns out not all of his landings went so well. In fact, he had many brushes with death before that landing ever happened on the moon. And it is a fabulous story and an investigation into how people learn and recover from struggles in order to do some really extraordinary things. If that's of interest to you, check that out on Dave's Journal. All of those resources you can find easily on the Coaching for Leaders Dot com website. And if you haven't already, I'd invite you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. When you do, one of the things you're going to get access to is something inside the panel there called Dave's Library. I have databased every single resource that I've passed along in the weekly leadership guides over the last eight years now. All of it, every single one, all of those podcasts, resources, articles, most of them from other folks, and I've sorted them by topic. So if you're looking for great articles, resources to pass along to your team, clients, colleagues, mentors, Dave's Dave's library is a great place to start. So check that out. And it's also the way to get access to the weekly leadership guide and tons of other resources inside the free membership. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go to get access to everything. Have a fabulous week and see you back next week for our question and answer show. Take care.